Good morning. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. And this morning, we're going to try to cover a lot of material in Genesis 6 through 9. The story of Noah and the flood and the ark. Uh, But before we begin there, I think it's important to set the stage of what's happening in this world that God has created, uh, beginning in Genesis 1 all the way up to Genesis 5. And if we understand what's been going on, then Genesis 6 through 9 begins to make a little bit more sense. Let me tell you uh, what I hope you will see from the message this morning And the main thrust of what we're going to talk about is simply going to be the character of God in the midst of a terrible judgment. And what I want you to walk away with this morning, hopefully, besides whatever the Spirit has for you in His Word, what I want you to walk away with is a deeper affection for God through the person of Jesus And that's why the title of the message is Adam, Noah, and Jesus, because I'd like to connect these three people and show what kind of a God we serve, and that he's the same God from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the beginning of creation till now and forever. And I hope that if you don't know where you stand with Jesus that you'll be drawn to him, and I hope that if you do know where you stand with Jesus, that you'll be drawn to fall deeper in love with who our God truly is, despite our sin and despite great evil. So that's what I hope for you, and that's what I hope you are able to see here. And so let's begin by um, setting the stage for Genesis 6. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we get the creation account. And you'll remember that after God creates, he looks and he sees his creation, he sees his work, and he says one of two phrases, it is good or it is very good. And things are good. In the garden, he has created trees and flowers and water and grass and animals and birds and fish and the sun and the moon and the atmosphere and the stars and everything that we see today. And it's all good until he gets to the last day of creation where he creates the crowning achievement, the greatest thing that he creates, and that is, according to God himself, humans. And when he creates humans, he says it is very good. And what's so great about humans is that they are created, and I know we've talked about this the last couple weeks, and the importance of this, they are created in the image of God. They are imprinted with qualities and characteristics similar to the creator God. And they are the part of creation that God desires to be in a deep, intimate, personal relationship with And so in Genesis 1 and 2, we see this good 
world created and this garden where God and man walk together in fellowship. No shame, no guilt, no hiding. Walking together, learning from the Creator and doing His work, being the representatives to the rest of His creation, right? God entrusts creation and the work um, that He Himself does. He entrusts that to His partners, Adam and Eve. And He says, you go out and you do what I do. You rule on my behalf. You take care of everything I've made. You're in charge of it. Think of Adam and Eve as prophet, priests, and kings. They are to rule, they are to represent God, and they are to be, um, they are to share the will of God with the rest of the earth and run things the way he would. Well, that's Genesis 1 and 2, and it's a beautiful picture. But then we get to Genesis 3, and everything changes. In Genesis 3, we have the fall of humanity, and we have sin entering the world, and through sin comes death. Adam and Eve decide to rebel against God's authority and God's design. He asked one thing, don't eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree. You have everything else. I give you everything else. Just don't do this one thing. He enters into a covenant with them and says, if you will not do this thing, you will live forever and we will be in harmony together forever. But humanity, Adam and Eve, decide that they cannot meet this request and that instead of following God's authority and design, they would reach out and grab power for themselves. And so through that, we learn that sin and death enter into the creation. And when God comes to find Adam and Eve, his friends and partners, they are hiding in shame because they cannot bear to be seen by God for what they have done. Their sin has caused a rift in the relationship. And so God comes to them and he talks to them and he learns what has happened. And then he pronounces judgment on his creation. And everyone is affected by the sin of humanity. Now harmony is thrown out the door. Now grasping for power and selfishness is what is most important in the human heart. And um, I would even say rejecting God's place as king overall is what becomes important. And the earth is cursed and relationships are cursed and pain and childbearing and everything that God said I want you to do now is affected by sin and death. And before we move on, though, it's important to note, and this is a theme that you're going to start seeing, hopefully, this morning. In Genesis 3.15, if you want to take a look at this, in the midst of pronouncing judgment over sin and evil, God says this in Genesis 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to Satan. He's talking to the snake. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. There's going to be a cosmic battle being fought between the people, uh, between humanity and between evil. There's going to be a war. And God says this in Genesis 3.15. He says, this is how it's going to go. Here's what's going to happen. The one who comes from the woman, the woman's seed, a son born of Eve 
will bruise the head of the snake, will crush the head of evil, but it won't be, uh, but it won't be a clean fight, it won't be a clean victory, it won't be decisive in the moment, because in the moment, the snake will bruise, will get to bite the heel of this one who's coming from the woman to put things right. Now, this is a, uh, <laughs> there's so much in these sentences, and you can see that I'm adding a little bit more, but as the Bible goes on, we get to learn what this verse means. If you were there in the garden, you might think, well, this is weird. Why would God talk about this bruising and, and heels and seeds and snakes and, and all this stuff? What's going on here? But what is, what this is called, what theologians call this, is the proto-evangel, the first time the gospel of Jesus Christ is spoken in the Bible. Though they don't know who Jesus is yet, this is the first time God pronounces in the midst of, just, of judgment mercy for the people, for, for humanity, mercy for the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And so I point that out because that's going to become a major theme in Genesis 6 through 9. That despite God's judgment, he remains merciful. And it's not that he is compelled by anything that we do to be merciful, but simply by his good nature, the fact that he is good compels him to be merciful to those in need. And that's what we're going to see uh, in Genesis 6-9 through 9 a little more clearly, but I want to point this out. Because then we go to Genesis chapter 4, and now you start to see the creation and humanity in a downward spiral towards greater and greater evil. In Genesis 4, we get the story of Cain and Abel, and you know how that goes. Abel pleases the Lord with his sacrifice and seeks to honor God, and Cain um, does not. And Cain is so jealous that God favors Abel that he murders his own brother. And Cain tries to run away and hide from it, and God finds him and stops him and says, why did you do this? And he pronounces judgment on Cain, and he also pronounces mercy on Cain. And he says, Cain, if someone tries to kill you, I will avenge you. I will bring justice to you. Though you have done great evil, I will bring justice to you. And this is interesting that this keeps happening over and over again. God pronounces judgment, and yet he shows great mercy. Uh, and then we get to Genesis 6. We're going to skip over 5 for a second. We get to Genesis 6, and it says this in verse 1. Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. You get the idea that God is in a battle of wills with his creation, that he is becoming tired of what's going on of this downward spiral. For he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 124 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God... That word sons of God is Elohim in the Hebrew. The sons of God came to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. I point this out not because we're going to get into this. could be a whole other thing. 
We're not going to get into the, every, the details of what this passage is saying, but I want to point something out to you. Things have become so bad that even heaven and earth, the evil is blurring together. The line between where God is separate and where humans are and their evil is starting to blur. Even heaven is being overtaken. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There's an interesting picture back in Genesis 4 of the hearts of men. Why God would even say, why we get this record that every thought was evil continually. If you go back to Genesis 4, look at verse 19. This is a son of Cain. His name's Lamech. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. And Ada bore Jabal, who was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. That's original. He was the father of all those who play the harp and the flute. And as for Zillah, she bore Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. I read all that. Because I want you to see, and, and hopefully, and, and next week we're going to talk about the next story in Genesis 1 through 11, and the seeds of what's going on here in Genesis 4, 5, and 6 are going to affect what happens even after the flood. So the grace of God is that he's created humans to be able to use their brains and their, their minds, their bodies, to create technology and to advance civilization. And the mercy of God is being used against him. The gifts of God are being used against the creator. And the family of Cain, and especially this man Lamech, is a perfect example we get this account of how his sons were craftsmen, were expert master craftsmen, and so they were given these good gifts by God. And then we get this uh, speech from Lamech, and it says this, and this is how you know the hearts of people at this time. He says this, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. What does that mean? Big deal. Well, right off the bat, we learn that Lamech took for himself two wives. How many wives did God say you were supposed to take? From the beginning in the creation mandate, one woman and one man. And that is God's boundary for marriage. And, God, and Lamech himself is setting him up as a new God. He'll take as many wives as he chooses. And then in his speech, he tells his wives, listen, if anyone even attempts to hurt me, instead of seeking justice against what they've done for me, I will play God and I will kill them. I will take their life. What did God just say to Cain earlier in chapter 4? You are not to take the life of an image bearer. You do not kill other people. That's how important my creation is to me. And Lamech stands above God and says, I'll kill whoever I wish to kill. And then he pronounces for himself, as if he were God, his own blessing. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, now he's making a mockery of God's mercy to Cain. If Cain's avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. And he's saying, God, you'll avenge me how I wish. You see, this is the heart of people. I point this out so that when you read in Genesis 6, 
And it says, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent and thought of his heart was only evil continually. You can have some idea of what God is seeing in his creation. And it's not just earth that is being affected, but even the sons of God, the Elohim, those from heaven are coming down and partaking in this evil. In verse 11 of chapter 6, it says, The earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Usually with the story of Noah and the flood, we have cartoons or we have children's versions of the story, and it's a happy story with, you know, God calling animals into a boat and saving them, and it's all great and colorful, but this was not the state of the world. And I point this out because, like I said earlier, I want you to see the character of God in the midst of this great rebellion, this cosmic rebellion against him, his creation that would seek to overthrow his rule and authority. I want you to see how God responds. And that's the question, what will God do? In verse 7 of chapter 6, it says this, The Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I had made them. And in verse 17, he repeats that and says, Behold, I myself, and here's how I'll do it, I'm bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Now here's a really quick, important point I want to make about these two verses. Do you notice anything strange in the way God uh, phrases his judgment? In verse 7, he says, I will destroy man who have created the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air. If you've been reading from Genesis chapter 1, you should start to pick up that this is the same language used when God created. When God created, he said, I create, I have made, and God spoke and creeping things came forth, and man came forth, and beasts came forth. And then in 17, when he says, I will destroy everything with the breath of life, that should call you back to Genesis 1 and 2, when God breathed the breath of life into humans. And so if you sat and read through 6 through 9 here, Genesis 6 through 9, you would find many different phrases. There are um, several phrases that are used to call you back to the creation of the world. And I point that out because this is very, very important to understand why God does what he does and who God is. You see, back when we were in Genesis 1 and 2, everything was good. God spoke, it came to be, and it was good. And there was harmony, and there was peace, and there was love, and there was this relationship, untainted by sin, no shame, no guilt. Everything was right the way it was supposed to be. And God, who didn't need anything from us, from his creation, because he's so good, chose to give us life, chose to bring us into relationship with him, chose to make this planet and make those who would live on it, chose to give every human his image simply out of his good character, his love, his goodness, his righteousness. That is what God is compelled to do. He's compelled to do good. And so he didn't need to create. He chose to create as an expression of who he is. 
And when Genesis 6 through 9 points you back to the language of creation, I think it is so that you and I can understand the weight of God's decision. That God is choosing to reverse what he has done. And he's not choosing it lightly. And he certainly didn't fly off the handle. And he certainly didn't wait for the first person to mess up and then scrap it and start all over again. In fact, he's been patient. And he's allowed the consequences of men and women's choices to come and to go. And he has waited for those who would follow him. And now he's finally to the point where he says, the only thing that can fix this is an act, not of creation, but of decreation. He's going to reverse what he's done in the lands that he brought up out of the waters. He's now going to sink them back into the waters. So that's what's going to happen. You know the story. So we're not going to get into all the details of the story because you know it. But here's what I want to point out next. What do we learn about who God is in this act of decreation? Who do we learn about, what do we learn about who God is in this act of terrible judgment? Why did he choose to do this? Oftentimes the God of the Old Testament is pictured as some sort of vengeful, angry God, and we have to get to the New Testament till we can figure out that maybe he cares a little bit about love, but it takes Jesus to come and show us that. But what I want to show you is that from the very beginning, from the beginning of Genesis chapter 1, even through the flood and up till today, God has been the same. And he's not angry and he's not vengeful. In fact, what he's doing is an act of mercy. And I want to show you that here in a second. So I've got four things that I see is true about God, four characteristics that I see, and there's probably more, but four that I um, wanted to highlight for you in Genesis 6 through 9. Four characteristics about God. And when as we look at these, I hope that it will draw you nearer to him. The first thing we learn about God in Genesis 6 through 9 in the story of the flood is that God is sovereign. And I tried to go in an order here that would make sense. They kind of build off each other. So God is sovereign. That means he's the supreme ruler of all. And I think that is vitally important to notice. The same God who saw that his creation was good after he spoke it into existence did not abandon his creation when things were getting bad. He didn't abandon it when things were getting worse, and he hasn't abandoned it now when men like Lamech are roaming around murdering and doing violence and setting their thrones up above God. God has not abandoned his creation, and he has not abandoned Genesis 3. 15. We're going to talk about that one at the very end. But God has not left things to just spiral out of control. In chapter 6, if you look at verse 5, 11, 12, and 13, you will see words like God saw, God looked, the Lord looked, the earth came before me. These are all ways to assure you that God is still in complete control of the situation. And we learn that he lets people do what they will do. But he doesn't back off, and his will will not be thwarted. God has set boundaries for his creation. He set up an order for things to work. He, when, he, when, he, uh, when he said to Adam and Eve, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be married to each other, and I want you to have children be fruitful and multiply. And I want you to tend to the garden. He set up boundaries for how he wanted that to be done. 
And so his boundaries, like we pointed out with Lamech, are being broken. Those things that God said, here's what I will have you do, are being, um, are being rejected, are being corrupted, as it says in verse 11. These people the, the, are taking what God has made good and they are turning it evil. And the evil of humanity must be made right. Perhaps if you don't know anything about who God is and you come to this story, you could say, well, wow, God seems like an angry, vengeful God who murdered people. How can that be loving? How can that be the same God who created man and woman, who created this beautiful world, who created relationships, and who gave us the ability to love and to be loved? How can that be the same God? Well, that brings me to the next thing that I see about God in this story. And I want to point this out because I think it's so important. There is not any indication, it's never said and it's never alluded to in, verse, in chapter 6 through 9, that this judgment is based out of anger or wrath or vengeance. It's not found here at all. God is not angry and he's not lashing out. And perhaps he would be right to do so because of all the offenses given to him. But nowhere do we find that God is angry as he is motivated to pass judgment. In verse uh, 6 of chapter 6, we see the heart of God on display. And what is he? He's not angry. He's sorry. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. God is brokenhearted over what has become of his creation, over the trajectory that his people that he made have chosen to go. And that the evil that they allowed into this world, that they brought into this world, and the death that has followed it has started to chew away at his creation. And God is sorry that this is happening. And so out of grief and out of a broken heart, we learn the next thing about God and that he is gracious and merciful. His grief doesn't drive him to anger. His grief doesn't drive him to wrath. His grief drives him to be gracious and merciful. And I want to look at two examples of that in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. Uh, before I do that, though, I want to read to you something from Exodus. You don't have to turn there. But in Exodus, chapter 34, there's a similar situation going on where God is with his people, the Israelites. They've just come out of, um, they've just come out of slavery. And he is making a covenant with them. And he's beginning them to teach them what he wants them to do as his people. And in the midst of this, they start to worship the golden calf. And in the midst of God doing this amazing work on their behalf, his people begin to betray him. And as that's going on, and he's aware of it, and Moses finds out about it, we get this interesting statement that God makes about himself. And it's a statement that's true here in Exodus 34 and true in Genesis 6. Exodus 34, verse 6 says this, And the Lord passed before Moses, and he said, The Lord, the Lord, 
the, uh, sorry, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God makes this statement to Moses. Though Moses knows what the people of God are doing, though God knows what's being done and the fact that he's being betrayed at this very moment, God tells you exactly who he is. And in other words, if you were to um, look at what the Hebrew says and really break down what the words are saying, God is describing himself this way. He's patient, long-suffering, like that's probably the best English word you could come up with to mean patient. And it's even more than patient. It's that he suffers the evils and injustices and the offenses of sinners long. That's how patient he is. Um, He is like a mother who cares for her newborn child, the way a mother would fight to protect her newborn child, the way a mother loves her newborn child. God describes himself that way in Exodus 34. He is one who gives uh, goodness and goodness beyond what is deserved to the undeserving. We call that grace. He describes himself that way in Exodus 34. Gives you what you don't deserve. And not just what you don't deserve, but even better than that. And he describes himself as one who is an active lover. And what I mean by that is his love isn't passive. And you see that, right, when in his sovereignty, when he doesn't just step back from this world and say, well, let it just destroy itself. But when he steps in and fixes what's been made wrong, his love is active. It compels him to move. God isn't passive in his love. He's active. That's what Exodus 34 does in describing God. And so I want to come back to Genesis 6 here, and I want you to see that that's still true about God. Even the God who would send a flood to destroy the earth, that same God is gracious and merciful and actively loving his creation. If you look at uh, verse nine, uh, sorry, verse 8 of chapter 6, there's this little sentence that throws the grace and the graciousness of God into sharp relief. It shows us what kind of a God he is. In verse 8 of chapter 6, it says this, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, this is the first time Noah's name gets mentioned. It's the first time he comes on the scene. If you're telling the story of Noah and the ark, you probably mention the fact, most everybody does, right, that Noah was a righteous man. I find this very interesting, that before we know anything about the character of Noah, before we know anything about that, We know what God thinks about Noah. And then we learn that Noah is just and he is perfect in his generation. I find that fascinating. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Other translations might say he found favor. Favor and grace are interchangeable here. God is gracious. He looks out over this torn, evil creation that is sinking further and further and further into destruction. And he finds Noah, and he shows him grace. Uh, in my mind, and we're going to get to this in a couple of weeks, but this is similar to Abraham. Abraham was a guy who God showed grace and favor to, and that changed the trajectory of his life. Right? 
When we get to chapter 12, it says God called Abraham. We don't know what Abraham was doing that much before. But when God showed favor and grace to Abraham, then his life changed as he began his journey with God. So I find similarities here with this verse, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The grace that God extends to Noah makes up chapter, the rest of chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, and half of chapter 9. Everything that comes next in the story is about God showing grace and mercy to Noah and his family. You see that when he tells Noah, listen, um, I'm going to be sending a flood. I'm going to be bringing judgment down on the evil wickedness of this world. But Noah, I want to save you. The end of all flesh has come before me, in verse 13, God says. The earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So, Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And then he goes into how Noah is to construct this boat, this salvation, what Noah is supposed to do to survive the judgment of God and to come through on the other side. And in verse 22, it says, Noah did according to all that God commanded him. And I think this is interesting, too, and you probably, um, maybe you point this out when you tell this story, but in chapter 7, in verse 14, it says this. I think this is just another picture of God's grace. So uh, those that entered, male and female of all flesh, when in, as God had commanded them, the Lord shut Mo uh, Noah in. So when it was time to get in and the rains were coming and the flood waters were coming, God shut his chosen family into safety and salvation in the ark to survive the judgment of God. That's what a gracious God is like. That's what active love compels him to do, is to save those in need of his salvation, to save those in need of his love. Another way that God is, great, uh, God is merciful in this story, and, and um, I want to just point this out quickly, is the very act of this judgment, according to God, is an act of mercy. The flood is not, like I said before, it's not a reaction out of anger, it's not vengeance, it's not wrath. It is God seeing that sin and evil are becoming so dominant and prominent in the creation that it's threatening to destroy everything and that the only hope for that creation, for what God made and for humanity, is to wipe it away and start again. It's to decreate, to recreate, and make something new. Now, I hope you're keeping track of these themes. God's judgment over sin. God's desire to make something new. God's compelling love that causes him to be in relationship with people and makes him want to save sinners. Makes him want to save those who are in need. Because we still got to tie Jesus into this. And I hope you're seeing Jesus through these characteristics of God. But let's go to the final one real quick. And this is that God is faithful. We've looked that God is sovereign. We've seen that he was grieved over sin. We see that he is gracious and merciful to those who don't deserve it. 
and we see that God is faithful. And perhaps above all, his faithfulness is what is at most display in Genesis 6 through 9. Because he could have said, let's just end this, and maybe I'll start again, or maybe I won't. Or let's just end this and let's just let's just find it. Let's just start a whole nother universe. Let's start a whole nother planet. Let's start a whole nother thing. Let's just end this. But if you remember back in Genesis 3:15, God made a promise to the children of Adam and Eve that there was one who was going to come, who was going to crush the sting of sin and death, and that had not happened yet. And so God is faithful in his promise, and he says, well, then here's what we're going to do. We're going to wipe away sin, we're going to start anew, and we're going to do it with this family of Noah. So in God's faithfulness, Noah becomes a new Adam figure. If, if uh, you, you have to think this, we have the benefit of hindsight, right? So whenever we read Genesis 3.15, or we hear about the Son of Man, or the One coming, or we always think about Jesus, because we know he's the fulfillment, right? But Noah didn't know who the fulfillment was. Noah's children didn't know who the fulfillment was. Uh, Cain and Abel didn't know who the fulfillment was. Perhaps they were thinking it was going to be one of them. Or Seth, right? The godly third brother. Uh, David didn't know who it was going to be. They were always waiting for some leader to come and be the one promised. Well, Noah now takes this mantle, right? Everyone else is destroyed. Sin is being destroyed. The world is being wiped clean, and God is breaking a new creation, and he's doing it through the family of Noah, who it says was a righteous man who God found favor with. So Noah becomes this new Adam. He is the hope now for creation that the defeat of evil is upon us. God's wiping it away right through the waters, and the restoration back to the Garden of Eden will come. And in Genesis 8, verse 1, it says this, God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind, and that Hebrew word is the same word for his spirit. So God's spirit passed over the earth and the waters subsided. It's not that God forgot. The, uh, the, the language here is so that you understand how faithful God is is that God made sure Noah was kept safe and he didn't leave Noah to just keep floating in this flood forever. He went back and he finished what he started. And so Noah becomes the hope for creation. He's the leader that's come that, has, that is going to, um, going to help set up this new and glorious creation and get us back to the way things were supposed to be in Genesis 1. And everything to, uh, to lead you to believe that's true is found within Genesis chapter 8 and 9. God recedes the water, right? So the, the, the earth comes back and, and, and the animals go out. And, and God says to, God makes a covenant with the earth. And he makes a covenant with Noah's family. And it's almost exactly the same word for word as the covenants he made with Adam and Eve and the covenant he made with Cain and all of these things. And he says, be fruitful multiply. You are now the rulers of the new creation. You are now the ones who will be my prophets, priests, and kings. You are the one who are to show this world, this creation, how to honor God and be righteous. You're not to take a life. You're not to kill those with the image of God. He says all of that in chapters 8 and 9. And if the story ended there, 
you would have thought that the fulfillment of the prophecy of the one to come had been made. But our Bibles are a lot thicker than that, and the story doesn't end there. Unfortunately, Noah, who is supposed to be this new Adam, succumbs to the sin that is lurking within his own heart. Because it's going to take someone stronger than Noah. It's going to take someone unlike Noah, and yet almost exactly like Noah, to overcome the evils of sin and death. And so at the end of chapter 9, we, we're not going to read it, but um, Noah commits a terrible sin. And out of his anger for what happens, he pronounces sin and curses on his own family. And we realize that Noah is not the one to come. And so that's why I want to end this by looking at Jesus 